Hello and welcome to the Buffalo Sessions. I'm your host, Jamie Stewart from Circle Networks. Are you ready to scale your business in order to earn more and work less? In this podcast, I share insights and interviews with real business owners to reveal what's working for them, to help you to be more Buffalo, to improve your life and business. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome. Episode 43 of the Buffalo Sessions. And today I am joined by a very special lady. She's she's the B lady. She's a, a two times TEDx speaker. She's an international speaker, published author, not one but two books. And she's making a difference to our planet. Let me welcome Paula Carnell to the show. Hello, and I'm so chuffed to be here. It's really exciting. Thank you. So we're, we've been connected for a couple of years now, I think. We met at a conference, uh, Expert Empires, a few years ago. Um, but we were both on Elliot Kay's networking event a couple of weeks ago and rekindled that conversation. And here we are today. I know. And I'm just so grateful because you gave me some really good tips. And and as we were just saying, we've acted on them and it's wonderful to be here today. So thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so let's let's backtrack a little bit. So you are the bee lady, and you you help people connect. Or you just said help people with the connection between bees and business. Yeah, yeah, it's bees and nature. And I think with my work, I've always had my own business. So as soon as I left school, you know, I've been selling things and and earning my own living, and. I had 20 years as an artist, so that makes you sort of think outside the box. And so I had to earn a living as an artist, which is a challenge. And you're you're sort of offsetting or trying to um, push up against everyone going, you know, the starving artist, you'll never earn a living. So I had a 20 year career of doing that and I painted flowers. And what I realize is that business is or for me my business is me it's always been me I've always been my own brand and my connection with nature makes me healthy and what I realize as well is that all businesses need to have a connection with nature you know we are all part of nature and a business is just an outer sort of version of yourself or of the core of the business the the idea of the business and so it's all interconnected and the bees really help us see that. And this is what I find is using the bees as this amazing example of successful business and, and how we can integrate that into whatever we do with our lives to, to create the lives that we want and, and earn a good living and a good, honest, happy living. <laughs> I've got loads of questions for you. Let's Let's start with... What what have you done in your career that's led you to this point? So you've oh. touched on it there that you've been an artist. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was an artist. I sold my first painting when I was age 13. I think it was always that, oh, well, you, you know, that's not a proper job. So I was always thinking, how can I earn a living as an artist? But it was also very important to me that I wasn't a sort of jobbing artist, Um I had a gallery, I had a publishing business, I was a Prince's Youth Business Trust business, so I was young when I started and they, you know, young people could get all this support. And that was amazing because I had training from Richard Denny, who's just a great salesman. Um, you know, it was just phenomenal. You just network and meet some incredible people. And so that was the first 20 years. 
And then I fell ill at 40 and I spent the next seven years bed and wheelchair bound with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So I'd lost everything I'd built up. I'd been a successful artist. I felt I was at the top of my career. I was selling paintings for five figures. I was exhibiting between America and London. You know, it was that dream life, you know, and I thought that was my life purpose and that was what I was here to do. So it never occurred to me I would ever not be an artist. And then I find myself in bed, unable to do anything. And what was more frightening um, was the fact that as an artist, your work is meant to increase in value when you stop painting. But what I'd missed out on is you're meant to stop painting because you died, not because you're not fully dead. And so because I wasn't fully dead and because everyone who knew me knew me as an artist and never really believed that I was going to be as ill for as long as I was or that I would ever stop painting. I then had, you know, loads of paintings, no income um, and absolutely no energy and no physical ability to do anything. So that complete losing, you know, I was a limited company. I was VAT registered in those days you know, having merchant services so you could take credit cards, trying to end those kind of contracts when you you know you are sick and you don't. I had literally 10 minute sessions. I mean, I've got the same bookkeeper now I had then. And I remember her sitting on my bed and coming in for 10 minute sessions whilst we were dismantling a limited company. You know, I'd had shareholders. I mean, it, it was an absolute horror <laughs> it was just awful and you know on phone calls with um I think it was world pay and just try you know they don't get it nobody gets it when you're that kind of ill there isn't this kind of allowance and because it wasn't the big c you know it wasn't cancer there wasn't that understanding either so it was really tough and so having to deal with mindset of okay I am no longer taller the artist who am I and who are we when we can do no thing? I mean, I needed carers. Um, and so it's a massive thing about um, understanding yourself and how we become attached to what we do. So it was a massive, massive dismantling. My boys were young. They were nine and 11. You know, I was married. Well, I am married. And, you know, so you've got all that family stuff. There's the business. You're not bringing in anything you know, at a time when you really need to be bringing in lots of, you know, effort and finances. So it was a very, very challenging time. Um, but whilst I was ill, I could pull together all the things I'd learned. And I've been doing a lot of mindset work with my business, a lot of visualization, vision boards. And I spent a lot of the first couple of years literally meditating because that was all I could do. I was in a darkened room. I couldn't cope with people. I couldn't cope with sound. So it was literally just laying there and imagining the future I wanted to have. But I didn't know about bees. I didn't think about bees. But it it was a case of thinking, OK, I can't paint. I can't walk. I can't write. I can't read. I mean, you'd think seven years in bed, think of all the books you could read, think of all the videos you could watch, you know, couldn't do any of it. I would just, if I looked, if I looked anybody in the eyes, I'd be sick. You know, I, I had such intense sensory overload. And so it was like, okay, what can I do? Well, I can do yoga in my head. I could walk in my head. So I could go and travel to wherever I'd been and remember it. And 
and that was what I used to do was I just used to think okay I love walking the Dorset coast so it this bit to this bit would take an hour and a half so I'll check the clock and I'll think okay I'll start walking and what was amazing was I realized that through our lives I'd had 20 odd years of just busy 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 full-on artist full-on business employing people having a gallery traveling the world you know learning new skills always self-developing and I hadn't had any time to just sit and absorb and what I realized is a simple thing like a walk that you do all the time and quite often you'd be doing it thinking of other things or or talking to people or whatever but your brain takes in every detail so when you are completely focused and really being present your brain recalls everything that you saw everything that you felt everything that you you smelt and and it's so accurate and it's mind-blowing so you can recall all this information so I suddenly understood these old people that sit in a chair and look out a window for years you know I thought I get it you're you're reliving your whole life all the details you're too busy to enjoy so then, you know, I did that for a long time. And then it was like, okay, so what can I do? I could go wherever I wanted in my head. Um, it, it was a good few years before I could listen. I could lay on the hammock. So I'd lay in the hammock outside and just cloud burst. You know, I just look at clouds and, um, you know, I'd think of things like that. And then I started to think of all the things I'd always thought, oh, I'll do that one day. I'll do that one day. And beekeeping was one of those things that I'd always thought one day I'll keep bees. And so um, the second year into being bedbound, my husband had said, oh, it's your birthday. You know, what would you like? And I used to love having parties. We used to go dancing. You know, couldn't do any of that. And I just felt myself saying, I want a beehive. And he was like, oh, don't be so silly. You can't even get out of bed. What do you want a beehive for? You haven't got bees. You know, you can't have a beehive. And it was just, I need a beehive. I just know I have to have a beehive. If I have a beehive, the bees will come. And so reluctantly, he bought a kit and then he was out in the garage building this beehive for me. And for my birthday, I got a beehive. And the idea was I'd have the beehive. I could lay in bed, watch the bees and I would just see what happened. And there was amazing synchronicities. And a local chap was walking his dog in the field behind the house and turned out he was the swarm collector in our area. So then he decided to put some bees in my hive and teach me beekeeping. Um, and so, again, you know, it's the second thing that you're doing that you're not meant to earn a living at you know beekeepers are sort of old men with flowing beards and they're pottering in their garden with overalls on and having a bit of honey that they sell you know at the end of the drive and um and I never thought it would be a career but it became a passion because I connected with the bees and as I was taught about beekeeping I realized it wasn't very natural and as I was learning about my own health I realized that our environment had contributed to making me ill so although eventually I was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome which is a genetic condition so no cure no treatment and you're born with it so tough I realized that I'd been okay till I was 40 um not you know prime fitness but I'd, I'd survived so and I really felt that I would be alive later and walking so I knew that there was this period of time where I had to sort of unlock the code and as I learned more about bees and my intuition was saying we shouldn't be feeding bee sugar because I knew if I ate sugar, I had more inflammation. I had more pain. I had more nausea. So I was thinking, gosh, and with young boys, if you give young boys sugar, they're like 
wound up and don't sleep and you know hyper so I was like gosh why would we give bees sugar from August to April of course they're not healthy of course the bees are dying but it didn't seem like anyone else was thinking this or questioning it so I was just this middle-aged woman who was challenging all the wisdom of hundreds of beekeepers just going no no we shouldn't be feeding them sugar so that put me on a quest to find out um, and so my carers and my mum and anybody who was there, it was like, okay, you need to look up this. And can you look at that? Now read it to me and tell me what, you know, and, um, and then I, through herbal medicine and plant-based minerals and massive detoxing and really being conscious of my environment to ensure that my body had the best ability to heal itself. Then I recovered and I realized, oh my gosh, I've got to save the bees. I need to share what I've learned and transfer it into the bees so then people can understand that. And I think because I'd always been a business woman, when I recovered, you suddenly think, oh my gosh, I've got to contribute to society. But I didn't want to get ill again. And I knew that my environment, I had to be in control of my environment because it's by knowing what's in your environment and what you're putting into your body, you can actively maintain your health. And my health was now the most precious thing to me. So there was no way I could have a job. And I've, I've always had my own business. I mean, you know, you're unemployable, I think, the moment you've had your own, own business. So it was like, okay, what do I do? And the first thing I did was join a women's networking group. I can't even remember how I heard about it, but I found it. And it was lovely because it was a whole bunch of women around the same age who had left their careers because they'd had children, they, um, you know, gone through divorces, widows or illness, you know, had a cancer or whatever. And then they were coming back and rediscovering who they were. So we were all sort of thrown together and people at different stages of their own business development. And I remember doing a training day that you got with this network, which was coming up with the name of your business. And I knew I needed to be me. I needed to be me and my name. And during this training, it was like, well, what do you do? Well, I started studying to be a medical herbalist. Um, the plant-based minerals that had helped me heal, I was speaking for that company. And so I was a bit of a, you know, an affiliate marketer for, for that. And then I had my bees. And none of them were sort of big business by any means. And it was like, so who am I? What do I do? How can I make this into a business? And then it was during this session where we were all put in little groups and we were just brainstorming and we just came up with, I'm creating a buzz about health. And that became my business name. And, and it sort of the B was the center of it. You know, the B was the logo and creating a buzz about health, like a smile, but I still had the herbs, the minerals and the bees. And then I got an opportunity. And I think this is this is where having years of experience as a business person, but also having years of experience of being ill, you become fearless and nothing can hurt you anymore. You've already lost everything. So you've got nothing more to lose and, and everything to gain. And I got the opportunity um, to go and have a look around what is now the Newton Somerset. And I met the owners and they just said, oh, we've planted some orchards. We're thinking about bees. We come and have a look. So I got shown around and they were saying, oh, well, we're thinking of this, we're thinking of that, we really like education, we'd really like to have bees, what should we do? And I went away and I wrote a massive proposal. I just thought, okay, if this was mine, if it was my land, and if money was no object, and I can change the world, 
what would I do? And I just wrote it all down, sent it off. I got a one-line email back going, great, will you do it? <laughs> wow. And so that's what I did. And I had two years before they opened in opened to the public. And I just had to pull everything into the bees. And I literally had to become a bee expert because I knew that my thoughts, my my beliefs about bees were very controversial and very unique in the beekeeping world. And I needed to have the scientific proof that what I was doing was right. So the summers I was building up the bee colonies, looking after all the different bee species and assessing things and learning. And then the winter, I literally reinvested every penny into traveling the world, meeting scientists, going to lectures, meeting beekeepers, and just becoming who I am today. And, and what I love is when you get into your 50s, you know, I, I was sort of 47, 48 when I recovered, so I'm 54 now, nearly 55. And it was like everything I'd ever done has value for what I'm doing now. So one of the things was, was putting together um, a museum, a bee museum, which is now called the Byzantium. And so the creativity and being able to express my ideas visually, being able to draw them, but also with all the experience of putting on an exhibition, I knew about customers' experience, what they like to see, how they move around a room. I knew about attention spans. I knew as well about quality, because when you're selling £12,000 paintings to people that don't need them you're selling soul work you know you and you have to make sure that your paintings are connecting on a soul level this is it's not about money and so many people in business get hung up about with their own sort of monetary values you know they think oh well I wouldn't pay that for a painting so no one else will and so it was that ability to think okay this is going to be a top level hotel top level gardens we don't want to cut costs. We don't want to have, you know, it, it, this has got to be inspiring and aspirational. And so it was very refreshing to have a client who that was what they wanted. You know, they didn't want me going, OK, well, that hive is this much, but that's a lot of money. So let's have these cheap little hives. You know, it was like, OK, we want the best hives, but we want to learn. So let's have a selection of hives. Let's do it this way. So it's been, you know. An amazing journey, amazing journey, and nothing is wasted. I love it. What a story. So we talked beforehand about this and, and those being more buffalo moments when you've lost everything and got to reinvent yourself. And I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs do that. And you talked about how our, our job and our career defines us. And a lot of people introduce themselves by, hi, insert name, and their job title and when people go through things like redundancy which in the last 30 years has become more and more prevalent people lose a sense of worth they lose part of their identity when they lose their jobs mm, yeah it's a huge huge thing isn't it it and is so i remember once going to a um a neighbor's party it was sort of a new year's eve and i'd be wheeled over in the wheelchair brilliant thing this is all about mindset I I could never wear high heels as a businesswoman as an artist always had sensible shoes and then when I was in a wheelchair I realized I could wear whatever shoes I liked and I had the most amazing high heels and pointy shoes because I could just sit in this wheelchair with these fabulous shoes um so you know and I would get so much joy about dressing up and going out but I remember being all dressed up having these shoes 
tipped out the wheelchair and propped up in a corner and looking normal. And I remember somebody coming up to me who I didn't know and they just said, oh, hello, I'm whoever and who are you and what do you do? And I remember saying, I can make myself a cup of tea <laughs> because I had just been able to make, you know, to get to the kitchen and make myself a cup of tea. And I was so excited. I really wanted to tell the world that this was a huge achievement for me. And I remember this woman looking at me so shocked and then going, oh, okay. And then sort of shuffling on. And and it was realizing I was so in my own bubble, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, we just, this is the thing when you ask questions, we need to have that context of, you know, what, what it is. But as you say, everyone says, oh, I am this and I'm a plumber or my name is, and I do that. And yeah, you know, to really realize that, all I was was my name and I can make a cup of tea <laughs> you know that's the my achievement um so yeah I like that I like that. and you know for that reason I think that's why at our networking events we get people to start by introducing themselves tell us what you do when you're not working so we get to know the person first rather than just what it is that we do because otherwise people pigeonhole us with things um I'm fascinated to know you're You've spoken internationally. Could you give us what well, two things really? I'm assuming that you're a paid speaker mm -hmm. and that people fly you to their events for international events. Um, how did you make that transition into getting paid events first? Well, it started off by um, going to events and not being paid and just being present at the event. So the international talks I do are B conferences. And so um, they were the conferences I was going to, to learn. So you sort of network. And some of them are a great honor. So Appenmondia, I speak there and I still have to cover all my own costs. So I don't get paid for that. So this year I went to Chile, last year was Turkey. But again, this mindset and visualization, I was getting lots of invitations to go to different places and I speak to a lot of B groups um, in the UK. And I remember when I was an artist and the WI would pay £150. So, you know, 15 years ago, £150 to do an hour's talk and then you could sell some stuff. And what horrified me was re-emerging with such, so much story, you know, so many stories to share and a whole new, um, you know, sort of theme to share and a whole new audience and yet the prices hadn't gone up people were still expecting 150 pound so it was a case of thinking okay what am I worth and then there was people abroad who were wanting me to speak and it's like okay well I, I just can't go there unless you fly me out unless you pay me because my time is valuable and what is really interesting is when I've been flown out and paid I haven't even had to ask. They've, it's been so clear in my head. I mean, I applied to speak in Saudi Arabia and it, it wasn't a lot of notice, you know, to go there. And I'd looked at my diary and I just sort of kept that week free just in case, but I thought I'm not going unless they pay me. And, um, and then it was incredible because the first thing I hear is I get a WhatsApp message from somebody I have no idea. And, it, you know, it's all in Arabic as well, you know, the name of the person. And it just says, can we have your passport details because we need to book your flights? And it's like, oh, OK. <laughs> you know, and so it's that kind of thing. I think it's being so clear in your mind of what your value is. And then that has now replicated into the UK. 
but having a scale. So I have my big international, you know, lots of expenses, lots of um, value talk, you know, when you're a headline, I mean, the, the talk I've just done in Turkey, all scientists, all doctors, and they had me as the opening speaker to set the tone for the conference, which was, you know, that was quite exciting. Um, but it's like having that level so that when you have your little groups who say, oh, well, we've got a 40 pound budget and will you come and speak for us? And it's like, well, no, OK, it, this is my fees. You know, if it's international, it's four and a half K plus expensive. If it's a, a business event, it's this price. And then I do a local event, 500 pound plus VAT plus travel. And, you know, if your group can't afford it, club together with other groups or sell tickets or and it's it's taken a long time to have that confidence. But you realize, you know, if I bring I've got an amazing team here and Randy is is one of my team and she's just brilliant at selling honey and she'll sell my books. And people will often say to me, oh, well, if you come and talk, you can sell your books. And you're like, okay, well, if you've got an audience of 50 or 100 people, I might sell 10 or 20 books, you know, if I'm if I'm lucky at, you know, I'll do a special price instead of 12.99, it might be 10 pound each. But when you've done a talk, you get mobbed and you cannot sit there with a phone and a Zettel machine trying to calculate, oh, yeah, you've got a BID card, you want a postcard, you want to ask a question, you want a pot of honey and you want a book. And then people are going, so where did you learn about Oman or how did you learn about this? You can't do it. So I need to have someone to come with me. Then I've got their hourly wage, you know, if they've worked all day. And so then it made it when you really break it down and you think, OK, for me to bring someone, it actually costs me another 150 quid so then you've got to add the sales so then you could say okay I charge 500 plus VAT and I'm not selling anything I'm just purely giving value I'm going to be there I don't need to bring anyone I come in and I'll do slides because who can knock up slides in half an hour you know it it always it's a two-day event you know you spend a day thinking and putting together your slides then you've got a day you know loading and driving and going there you know, it's in your head. So you have to think, what am I worth a day? What am I worth for half a day? And it's having that confidence and being happy to go with the nose, you know, which I'd learned years ago from Jack Canfield. You know, it's you can't be so busy with all the 40 pound gigs or the free gigs that you've got no room for being flown around the world and paid for your time and your value. So, yeah, it takes it takes time and it takes confidence but when you know what you're worth, people stop challenging it. And I've had so many people now that they go, oh, four and a half thousand pounds. And I'll say, well, because you're a group, I can do it for 500 plus fat. And they're going, brilliant. What a bargain, <laughs> you know, because it's not, you know, it's not the full figure. Um, not three or four days out, out of your schedule, is it? International travel sounds great. But there's the prep to do beforehand, a day either way traveling, plus the day of the event. And depending yeah time zones you might be jet lagged when you get back as well yeah yeah I mean when I came back from Saudi I I really had a week I mean it was the end of a busy season but I did have a week afterwards where I was on a go slow I just felt gosh I'm tired and although I was treated like a superstar there and it was absolutely amazing because I was the only western woman there and we were in a rural part of Saudi Arabia um 
everybody wanted selfies everybody wanted to talk to me and it was very difficult to get downtime and the whole way that they work is not according to the the schedule so you've sort of got to be available you know it's like one minute you're sat and you're watching a talk that isn't the talk you thought was on because it's it's not and then you're saying oh can you just come over here and talk to this guy and oh yeah you're on national television because we just want to interview you and it you know and then oh could you come to this meeting and then you go to a meeting and you'll find I found I was sat at the table with the committee who was setting up actually setting up the um, Saudi Arabian Apitherapy and Complementary Medicine Association. So there's all these doctors and professors, and I'm sat there thinking, how did I get at this table? You know, it's just that being there and saying yes, you know. But but yeah, it's long days, and um, and I was tired after that. And it, you know, as you said, you've got to start factoring that in. It's all very glamorous when you first start flying around, but then you get to a point where you're like, you know. It, I've got to come back and be able to afford a holiday. <laughs> it is, and it's work. It's work. Yeah. And yeah. uh, one, you know, even an hour's keynote is effectively four or five days' work because there's the prep, yeah. the travel, the time out of work. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about TEDx then. How did you get involved in that and why? Well, I think if you've ever loved speaking, you you just want to be on a TED stage. And as an artist, it was one of my goals. I remember when I used to paint in my studio, I would I'd have an iPod and I would listen to um, podcasts and listen to all kinds of audio books. And I remember listening to a lot of TED talks. Um, and so I was just always found them inspiring and never got to see a real, you know, a live one, but just would always catch them up somehow. So it had always been in the back of my mind. And then when I got well, um, I just heard that Froome was doing a, a TED talk and there was some people I knew who were sort of vaguely involved and I didn't understand the format. I didn't really quite know what was gonna happen. And I got invited to be part of it. So that was 2019 and it was a 2020 TED um, TEDx in Froome so what they did was they did it online in 2020 so it ended up being a Zoom and I it, you know it was good but I I wasn't entirely sure if it was a proper TEDx or and we didn't have all the training because of all the lockdowns and so it was a good training run because there was a live audience on Zoom and then you're just doing your talk but you were hosted as well so it was a bit of an interview and I had always been a bit of a impulsive speakers you could probably guess you know it's just yeah wind me up and off I go and then they said right we've got to do a live one as soon as we can we're going to do a live TEDx so I was like yeah 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 I've got to do that and when you do the live TEDx you get training and I in my mind I was like whether I get chosen or not I want to do the training I will pay to do the training because I know I need more fine-tuning to get a talk down to 20 minutes or 12 minutes and um, thankfully I got through the auditions and I, I did have the training and I put so much work into that 12 minute talk and I learned so much you know just about the beginning middle end and and also with Ted um, they're very particular about what you talk about and basically everything I talk about is not allowed on Ted really? so uh, yeah natural medicine herbal medicine healing um, nutrition 
you've just got to be really careful. You can't talk about recoveries. You can't talk about cures. So I really had to think, how do I get my message that what's killing bees is killing us, but within the guidelines? So I didn't use the word recover or um, cure, but I was actually um, censored. I was edited. They took out where I said I was a patient of a medical herbalist because I thought that would be a way of saying how I got from A to B. Um, and they also took out something that I'd said about um, mineral supplements where they have the brand names on them. And they actually took that line out, even though everything I said was scientifically proven and backed up. And we had all the references. So I really, you know, I think sometimes if you don't have a struggle, if things are too easy, you can then trip up later on. But because I knew this, I was really careful to have everything lined up and in order and I've actually just applied to do another TEDx um, and you know I've given a lot more thought to the title because of course when you do your title you don't realize that's the title that's going to be on YouTube you know so you need to put a bit of thought into that and also I've been thinking okay what is the message that serves the world best you know it doesn't help anyone if I'm censored so I need to find a way and really craft my talk so that it it can be heard you know at the end of the day what's the point of speaking if nobody hears you so yeah so ted is a really valuable platform but you've got to read the rules <laughs> you know and understand you know what it is that that you're trying to do and it makes such a difference to you as a speaker if you've got a tedx even if people don't watch it the fact you can say you've done a tedx is is phenomenal but if people do watch it it's a game changer love that so now i've got some questions for you about bees what what do people need to know about bees that they don't know okay what they don't know is there's twenty two thousand species of bees in the world and only 11 of them make honey so all the fuss is about the honeybee and people will think oh i want to save the bees i'm going to get a beehive but actually getting a beehive can be the worst thing you'll do for your environment. It's bad for the bees and it's bad for all the other bee species because a beehive will grow to 50 or 70,000 bees and they all need feeding. So that's the first thing. If you want to save the bees, don't just get a beehive. Um, the other thing is that the other bees, they don't make honey because they don't have colonies. They still collect nectar from flowers and they collect pollen. So the pollen is protein, the nectar is carbohydrate. But because they don't have a colony that lives through the winter, they actually don't need to store the nectar. And it's the process that the honeybees do to the nectar to dehydrate it, to enable it to last. That's what makes the honeybees different. So I believe the honeybees are the connection between the heavens and humanity. They're the sort of canary in the coal mine. So the way we grow our food by spraying it with chemicals, that is killing bees. The question I'd like to ask people is, what is that doing to the people that eat that food? And we seem to have disassociated ourselves from the actions we take and the chemicals that are used to kill pests or insects are never tested on humans. And when they're tested on bees, if 50% of the bees survive, they can label it bee safe or bee friendly. So that's the second thing. So the first thing is how many species of bees. The second thing is um, about what's killing bees. 
could be having a major impact on us. Yeah. Um, the third thing is what can you do to save the bees? Plant more flowers, eat organic food, eat chemical free food, and don't wait for governments to change laws. The world runs by the power of the pound and the dollar. And we can really make a huge difference by being very conscious of where we bank, who we bank with, who we trade with, and just changing the world that way. And if you still don't believe me that that's going to make a difference, remember the plastic straws and how suddenly, just through social media, it became completely unacceptable to have plastic straws anywhere. If you went to a bar or a hotel and they had a plastic straw, you'd be like, oh, my gosh, I can't be here. And that was all social pressure. And that's what we need to do with chemical agriculture um, and chemical food is we just need to stop buying it. And if you think it's other people's fault, it's other people spraying crops or it's other people transporting bees for pollination or whatever. No, it isn't. It's it's us demanding cheap food. So we have to change that. And then, you know, the last thing, which I did sort of touch on there, is just plant more, more flowers. We need weeds. We need the wildflowers. We need um, we need things. When you stand outside and you look around you, if it's a sunny day, the bees will be flying. And what will those bees be eating? And if there's nothing in flower, there's no food for the bees. So it's really seeing the world from the bees perspective, which is what I wanted from the Byzantium at the Newt was people walk into this giant beehive and you suddenly go, oh my gosh, I get it. And that's what I feel my life's work is now is just to help people reconnect with nature, perhaps through the bees and to, to see that we are part of nature. We're not on top of it or to the side of it. We are part of nature and we have a really important role to play. And that is to speak and to stand up for those that aren't being heard. And it's the bees and the flowers. So that's my that's my mission. And what's the feedback been then of your work at the Newt? Oh, it, it's been amazing. And I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity. Um, and the thing that is most commonly said to me is, coming in the Byzantium or doing a tour with me, I do bee safaris or honey tastings. They just go, it's changed my life. I'm never gonna buy cheap honey again. I'm I'm gonna let the dandelions flower in my lawn. I'm gonna stop cutting grass in May. I'm gonna keep trees. I'm gonna hug trees. I'm gonna defend ancient trees. You know, everybody has a different takeaway. And I think because the newt is a place of privilege, people that stay there or people that visit there they've you know they're they're somewhere up the hierarchy of needs you know it's and this is where I feel I can make the most difference and I think quite often if you're doing a business where you feel you want to change the world you can get really bogged down with trying to change everything and everybody but you've got to know your market and I can be quite bullish you know I can I I had a group of of women of great privilege from South Africa and they were having a private tour and they were doing wine vineyards and things and then they'd come to see the and gardens that's right and then they'd come into the new and then I had a, a group with them which I wasn't meant to have actually they were with one of my B team and then I popped into the Byzantium at the end of their tour and then I got introduced and then they started asking me questions and they were very much of like, oh, yeah, government should do this and we've got this problem and people shouldn't do that. 
And I just said, you're all women who buy plants, you're women who employ gardeners, you're women who have, you know, have husbands of influence. You can change all this, to quote lovely Randy, on a dime. You know, you can just turn it all around just by refusing to take this anymore. You know, your children are grown up, your husbands can look after themselves. You are now free um, women to really start stepping into your power and realizing how powerful you are you've got nothing to lose now just go out and do it and there was a few sort of like shocks and then there was like a oh right okay brilliant right this is can I do this should I do that and it was and that's what I love is having that I feel I've got the weight of the bees and nature behind me and the weight of experience to say I've been in the darkest places I've got nothing to be fearful of now so I can just speak what needs to be said and you know and that's what I do but I'm I'm actually leaving the newt um at the end of December I'm handing it all over to my B team um I've set it all up it's all up and running because I just want to spread my wings even further I just want to have bigger audiences there's more work I need to do and um so that again is being a bit buffalo it would be very easy to stay there and go yeah this is great I'm doing my thing but maybe a bit ahead of when I should. I'm just thinking, no, I need to charge somewhere else now. Um, and so that's what I'm doing. So I'm having another buffalo <laughs> buffalo period of, of like maybe even a lemming, you know, just charging off a cliff and thinking I need to do this now. But um, But I always work to intuition. I just feel when I have a strong calling to do something, that's what I have to do. And I needed to clear space for new things to come in. So... So it's an exciting time. With, without a doubt, right? There's so many things that you've said there, and I'd encourage people to listen back to that again. That going with our intuition, we should tune in more to that, creating space for things. We've got to surround ourselves, and we had this conversation recently, surround ourselves with the right people has a massive impact on us. And we're sparking some ideas off, off each other over the last few weeks that have led to new opportunities. Then creating space i'm a huge believer in that decluttering all aspects of our life create space for new things to come in yeah and yeah. it feels scary and some people are probably saying to you why would you leave the new when it's gone so well what, what are you doing are you mad but we've got this belief in us otherwise we'd still be in jobs yeah we're the crazy ones that think we need to go and do something new and create something new and make a difference i love how you're making a difference and you're you're not held back by the fears and doubts that most people have that stops them doing things and you're right okay that's what I'm going to go and do yeah yeah and I think you know you learn from people all around you and and Rob Moore you know he's a classic Marmite podcaster and speaker um and he says when you start making a difference you've got to get used to the people that you're challenging or who don't like you and and I need more of those because that's how you change things and something that really excites me I mean in the beekeeping world I have been heretic and there's a lot of people who would quite gladly have burnt me at the stake for years but now what I'm finding is the general muttering the general background is supporting what I'm saying it's changing and people who've been very silent for a long time and seemingly supporting one way of beekeeping they're now speaking out and going oh yeah yeah we've got to stop using chemicals in hives and we've got to stop feeding them sugar and it's like yes and what's lovely is I know that I started that 
wave. I know it's me because I had that courage to be the one person that was hated. And now that's given other people the confidence to stand out. And, and now the beekeeping groups are inviting me back in, even if they go, we don't agree with everything you say, but you seem like a good entertainment for the night and we're happy to pay your fee. So come on in, you know. And um, so it's it, it's just amazing. And I every day I'm just so grateful about life, you know, so grateful about what's happening and and how quickly things are changing now. It just feels like, whoa. And um, and that's really exciting. I love it. Right. So whether you're an aspiring speaker, you're in business, you're overcoming health challenges, there is something in this episode for everyone to take away. The the one bit that stands out was that moment when you sent went away un, unasked, unrequested proposal that you sent back to the newt, where you just went with your intuition and thought, right, if I had this opportunity, if it was going to be mine, here's what I would do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what we have to do because people don't know what they don't know. And there's everyone else who done it would would have just thought, oh, they're going to want 100 beehives, 100 colonies of bees and a honey factory. And because I wasn't going to do any of that, I had to think outside the box of how else can they get a return on investment without having a honey factory, without harming the bees? And how can they grow apples? without using chemicals you know and and have the gardens so that it's all natural and feeding the bees and so there's wildflower meadows there's no mow may there's all these little things which i know i had an influence on and that's that's a joy enough and it's down the road for me so i'll always be popping back but you know i'll be popping back after going somewhere else you know so it's it's exciting and if someone wants to find out more about you, Paula, where should they go? What's the best way to find out more about what you do? Okay, well, I have a website, um, which is just my name, paulacarnell.com. Um, I'm on Instagram. That's where I try and be most active. And I'm also on LinkedIn. And both of them are just my name, Paula Carnell. Um, and I have my podcast, so uh, which is Paula Carnell, Creating a Buzz About Health. And if you just search in your podcast and just put my name in, you'll come up with other episodes with other podcasters as well that I've done. And this is what I love is I've shared stuff today that I haven't even shared on my podcast. And, and it's just great how the energies with different hosts, you just pull out another thing, you know, another layer. And, you know, nearly 55, there's so many layers that can be can be revealed so that's great thank you i loved it i loved having you on thank you very much it's been great having you oh it's been absolute joy thank you so much okay so if if you've enjoyed this and you feel like you want to find out more i'd encourage you to go and find paula on which, whichever social media platform you enjoy and subscribe to her podcast because i'm sure there is something in there for you that will make a difference and to help you make a difference with the bees and with our environment thank you thank you